Another thing that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is our willingness to hear and receive and submit ourselves to God's Word. I mentioned uh, Queen Elizabeth. I might mention her a couple of times this morning. Uh, because uh, when the new king is um, enthroned at Westminster Abbey, uh, he'll be surrounded by all the wealth and pomp and pageantry of that ancient kingdom in this beautiful old building. And if they do the enthronement as they always have, at the high point of the service, the king will be presented with a Bible. And as it's presented to him, the presenter will say, here is the most precious gift that anyone can receive. Receive this word and use it in your work as leader of that great and old nation. What a privilege it is to be able to have God's word in our homes and in our hearts and we praise him for it. Would you please stand as we read from God's word this morning? We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, starting down in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus that he loved very much. Verse 22, he begins. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the body, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. I think this is going to be a particularly tricky passage of scripture to deal with, so I'd like to ask for your special prayers with me as we listen to what God, through his word, says to us. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we open our Bibles today to a passage that many people misunderstand, Many don't uh, approve of, many disagree with, Uh, but Lord, we come to you humbly asking that you would send your gracious, sovereign spirit upon each one of us, 
that you would pry open our cold and resistant hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might hear your word, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> On Thursday, November 20th, 1947, the then Princess Elizabeth married Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten at Westminster Abbey. It was one of the first televised events, and as a result, it was watched worldwide by an estimated 200 million people. It's a beautiful ceremony. It's, it's on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing, start to finish, the whole thing. I've, I've done that this week, thinking about uh, the Queen and her life and her family and her husband, Philip. Well, it was being watched at home by 200 million people, and the entire ceremony itself, the actual religious part of the service where the specific things were said, the vows were made, uh, there in front of 200 million people, uh, Princess Elizabeth, heir to the throne, uh, which was at that time one of the great thrones in Europe and in the world, revered by many she was the heir to this ancient kingdom. And as she stood there in front of her family and uh, the watching world, Princess Elizabeth promised, vowed to, quote, love, cherish, and to obey till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. It was, an, it was an amazing thing, and there, there was a lot of debate about that. When she was married, the prayer book actually included those words, to obey. Those were part of the prayer book. But in the 1920s, the Church of England had bowed to the pressure at the time to make those words optional, to obey. Those were optional words. And she made the decision on her own. No one forced her. She made the decision on her own that it was important to her that she included those words as she was marrying her husband. And it was a very significant moment. A lot of people commented on it even then. Of course, today those words are even more controversial. They stir up more of a reaction, but they were something that many people felt was controversial even at the time. And she and Philip went from being married there in Westminster Abbey in front of millions of people to living almost, uh, well, over 70 years together, her entire reign as queen of Great Britain and the Commonwealth of Nations. She lived her entire life as the sovereign over England, where she and her husband lived. Uh, she was actually the, the commander-in-chief of the Royal Navy in which Philip at that time was an officer. So it was a really remarkable vow that she made that uh, even though she had this enormous power in the world and she could literally command the Navy to do, uh, in theory, what she wanted them to do. Of course, there are all, all sorts of constraints, of course, in a constitutional monarchy. But in theory, as the commander-in-chief, she could order the Navy to do anything. Uh, 
in theory. And there was her husband to whom she had vowed before 200 million people and before the Lord that she would obey him. Now, the, the word here in the, in the marriage ceremony, still something people debate, but the, the word is a not particularly helpful translation of Ephesians chapter 5. That vow was not made up. It wasn't a cultural norm that they slipped into the prayer book. It was actually a principle that comes from the Bible, the most precious thing in this world. And Elizabeth, as a young woman, felt very strongly that as part of her walk with the Lord, which she felt very strongly about, she wanted to have this in her relationship with her husband. And she made that vow. And I'd like us to think about that. She's an example, one of countless examples. But I'd like for us to think about what Paul is teaching us, why it's important And why it matters today. Because I really think there's an important principle here. Actually several principles that we need to understand if we're going to really hear what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul to the Ephesians to you and me in Carrollton, Texas in 2022. So let's let's dig into what Paul has to say. I want to start by drawing your attention to verse 25. Husbands love your wives. You know, it's interesting, I've, I've heard and read so many articles about Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. And it almost always centers on the first few verses, verses 22 to 24. And you know what I mean, there's enormous disagreement about the roles of husbands and wives. And there's all this controversy specifically about what Paul is saying to wives. But I want to start by looking at what he has to say to husbands. Because in some ways what Paul had to say to wives in verse 22, at least at at an initial reading, isn't really that radical in some ways in that culture at that time. In some ways, if you look at it just on the surface, what he says in verse 22 isn't that radical. But what he says in verses 25 and following is earth-shatteringly radical. Because you see, in the culture of the first century, wives were expected to have a certain kind of relationship to their husbands. In some ways, at a superficial level, what Paul says in verse 22 isn't all that radically out of step with that, at least at first glance. But what he says in verse 25 was radically new. Because in that culture at that time, husbands didn't have really much of any responsibility to their wives. Wives were a kind of property. They could be disposed of. They could be divorced with just making a simple pronouncement was essentially what divorce was. A husband could pronounce his own divorce. There were all kinds of provisions, all kinds of loopholes that made divorce possible. And there were all kinds of laws and cultural mores that meant wives could be treated in the most deplorable way. When we read about first century marriage, it's, it's sickening to, to imagine that women could live in that kind of a situation. So when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, 
And he doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just say, feel fondly towards your wives. He defines it. Love looked like something as Paul was describing it here. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That was his expectation. That's what he told husbands that they needed to do. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then, to add the exclamation point, he says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Paul said to the husbands in the church in Ephesus, love your wife, love your wife the way Jesus loves the church. Love your wife to the point of giving your own life. Everything you have for your wife. That was a radically new thing to say. And I imagine in the congregation that first heard these verses, that was the part that caused them to catch their breath and be a little concerned. And that would have been the controversial part. Paul had come in and taken their idea of marriage and turned it on its head. He has a lot more to say about what that looks like. And again, he calls us again and again and again to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He talks about the sanctifying work of Jesus. He talks about the work of Jesus to prepare the church, the, uh, the, the way that Jesus came to teach us and to show us the truth. He's not saying that husbands are analogous to Jesus in each of those ways. Jesus is unique. But what he's saying is as Jesus gives and gives and gives and provides and shows mercy and loves and loves and loves, husbands, you be like that. We're going to circle back around and we'll look at the last couple of verses in closing. But I just want to underscore the fact that when Paul wrote this letter, that, brothers and sisters, was the controversial part. And I hope it will be something that we wrestle with. Every husband in this room, do you love your wife the way Jesus does? I've spent this week away from my wife (laughs) reading these verses and over and over again uh, I don't love the way Jesus loves. I want to but I don't. I'm a very, very poor example in many, many ways. And I have no doubt that if every man in this room who's married really takes to heart what Paul is saying. Guys, we're in pretty much the same boat. These are humbling words. They strip away all the pride, all the arrogance, all the the sense of self-satisfaction, all the things we can pretend and and, uh, go through these motions. It strips all that, that away and leaves us with the question, Does any of us love like that? So it's a humbling thing. Now let's go back to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, 
I want to draw your attention to something. It's been in the, pre, in the section we just looked at, beginning in verse 25, and in this section, verse 22. Notice who Paul's talking to as he writes these words. Verse 25 is addressed to husbands. He's saying, husbands, think about this. Are you doing this? Do you have in your mind an understanding of what Jesus has done for us and therefore what we're called to do for our loved ones, for our wives in particular? He's speaking to the husbands. He's not saying to the wives, wives, make your husband do this. He's not even saying to the church, church, make the husbands in the church do this. He's saying to the husbands, do this. Hear this, do this. And his confidence is the Holy Spirit's going to take this word and teach me and teach us and change us. And over many years, 70 plus, will transform us slowly, slowly with steps forward and huge steps back, good days, bad days, good weeks, bad weeks, good years, bad years, teaching every husband in this room, every husband who's ever read these words, helping us to become a little more like that. And similarly, verse 22 is not addressed to the church Primarily, It's not addressed primarily to the husbands. It doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit to you. It doesn't say that. Very purposefully, it doesn't say that. It's Paul, in love, speaking to a church he dearly loves, and he said, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, those are also challenging words, maybe a little less challenging in the first century than they are today. But let me tell you, I am married to a woman who has very strong opinions. I have two daughters who have very strong opinions. I have a daughter-in-law who has a birthday today, by the way, who has a very strong opinion. And sitting right over here, well, maybe she's not here at the moment. I have a granddaughter who I think just maybe went to the bathroom. Uh, A granddaughter, a woman who is going to grow up in a culture. And she will will be uh, a woman of her time. And she will be educated. She will have opportunities first century women couldn't have imagined. Jobs and opportunities. Opportunities to learn, to lead, to grow, to serve. All kinds of things that would have been unimaginable to first century hearers of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And yet to each of these women who are smart and educated and have strong feelings and are very, very, very often right, to each of them, Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does that look like? Well, as I said a moment ago, I think obey is not a particularly helpful translation of that word. Uh, You see the word obey across the page in chapter 6, verse 1. That is the Greek word obey. Children, obey. That is the Greek word obey. Chapter 5, verse 22 is a different word. It is a different Greek word with a different etymology and a different meaning and a very different application. 
Our children are to obey us. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your parents. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Children are to have an attitude of obedience to their children. To their uh, children have an attitude of obedience to their parents. But he doesn't say here, wives, obey your husbands. It's a bad translation. He actually says a, a different Greek word. In fact, we're learning Greek as a church. Okay, so bear with me. If you open to page nine and you look down to verse twenty-one. That word that is highlighted there is hupotesomenoi. That is a Greek word. The, the root is hupotasso. And it's a word that is very rich in meaning. Uh, there's another simpler Greek word for obey. This is hupotasso. And it's a word that Paul uses only in what's called the middle voice. We, we don't even have the middle voice in English. Uh, there's active and passive voice in English. But in Greek, there's active, middle, and passive. And uh, middle is not somehow in between active and passive. I mean, yeah, active and passive. That, that's, that's misleading. Middle is a voice that describes something one does to oneself. That voice, and it's only used in the middle voice. It's something one does to oneself. It is not something someone else does to you. Someone else doesn't submit you. That's a different word. Hupotasso is something one does to oneself. It is a conscious decision. And Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in his unchanging word, says to wives, Hupotasso your husband. Submit to your husband. Now, some people get all agitated about that word because we live in a culture and in a society and at a time in the history of the world when nobody likes to submit to anybody. It gets us worked up and angry and upset because it suggests all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Uh, inferiority, unimportance, uh, sort of a, a kind of a, a doormat existence. That is not what hupotasso means. You know why I know that? Because you know who hupotassos? Jesus. Jesus hupotassos. Jesus hupotassos his father. Let me get you to look over it just a few pages past. Look it over at Philippians chapter 2. And look down at verse 7. Just a Page over, Ephesians, sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is here manifesting the attitude of hupotasso. He is intentionally, voluntarily, of his own free will, submitting himself, emptying himself completely, becoming obedient. Jesus hupotassoed. There's another interesting place where Jesus hupotassoed. Flip, flip over a few chapters or a few books to Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Just take a quick look at Luke chapter 2, verse 51 on page 858. Look at verse 51. 
They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was hupotasso to them. He was hupotasso to his parents. He submitted to them. And at this point, uh, Jesus, all, this was after he'd been to the temple. This wasn't Jesus the infant. This wasn't Jesus the toddler. This is Jesus the young man who'd gone into the temple and contended with the teachers there and, and was more and more aware of who he was. He was more and more aware of who his father was. He, he mentions that in the verses just before. Jesus knew that God was his father, and yet he went and hupotassoed his parents. He submitted to them voluntarily. It was not a demonstration of weakness. He was not being a doormat. He was not passive. He actually was showing the fruit of the spirit of, the, of humility and a willingness to be in a relationship of respect and voluntary submission. That's what hupotasso is. It is not taking orders from a superior It's a relationship, a voluntary relationship that finds its reciprocal in the other person. I want to draw your attention to something. Look again at the Greek text, all right? This does not show up in any English translation I've seen. Look down at verse 24. Sorry, look down at verse 22. If you look in the English translation, it begins at verse, our passage today begins at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's not a particularly good English translation, that whole sentence. Because actually in Greek, the word submit doesn't even show up. If you look at verse 22, you will notice the word hupotasso does not show up. But look up at verse 21. And you'll notice there's a comma. The comma's there in Greek at the end of verse 20. Verse 21, it says looking at the ESV, which we have in front of us. Verse 21 is a clause at the end of verse 20. It's, and we dealt with it this way last Sunday. It's, a, it's a, a manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit. We talked about singing and verse 20, giving thanks, and in verse 21, submitting. And I actually gave it last week as, a, as an example of the work of the Holy Spirit. It leads us to do what? to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does for all of us. All of us show the fruit of the Spirit by submitting to one another. There's this mutual submission. I mean, the picture is almost like we're to outdo one another by submitting humbly to one another. In other words, there's never to be a relationship of lordering it over others. Paul saw himself as a servant. He introduced himself that way over and over again to all the churches. He does that to the church in Ephesus. He understood himself to be an apostle with a God-given responsibility. He understood himself to be a servant. And here he says that's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Well, actually, in the ESV translation, it shows up as a clause at the end of a paragraph concluding in verse 21. But in Greek... If you look at it, this is the way it actually appears in Greek. Verse 21 is the beginning of a new thought. I mean, I'm not going to argue. It is fruit of the Spirit. But it's actually a new thought that Paul is, is changing his, the development of his, of his logic here. Verse um, 
he actually is making the point that this fruit of the Spirit is something that the Holy Spirit is doing in all of us. And he's, it's almost as though he gives in verse 22 a, an example of that. So the, the submission he's describing that he calls wives to have towards their husbands is in a way an example of the willing, humble heart that all of us is to have. Now he especially singled out wives and he's going to go on to say a little bit more about that. He doesn't write a lot about it. But he's giving this as an example of what that looks like. He's actually taking what was... Uh, the best part of their cultural example, not the worst part. There are lots of awful parts. But he's taking the best part of that cultural example that they would have all understood, and he was saying that what you see in in a happy marriage, well, that is describing the attitude of willing submission that we are all to have towards one another and giving wives as an example of that. Well, today in our culture, we've... So much has changed. But the point is still the same. The the, the submissiveness that a wife is called to have for her husband is an example of the Spirit's work in all of us, helping all of us to die to self and be willing to submit to others. And Paul describes the relationship between husbands and wives that way. Now, people are free to get mad. People are free to disagree. There may be people listening online who want to write hate mail right now because it's so infuriating. I didn't make it up. It's not up to me. It's not up to us. You're free to disagree. But if you want the blessing of what God wants to give us in this passage, it will include that. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He gave you a lot of Words to explain what loving looks like. He takes a few words here to explain what submitting looks like. It's a little picture, a little picture, not analogous completely, but a little picture of the way we live in relationship to Jesus. Jesus does not lord. We have this distorted vision sometimes of Jesus as a taskmaster. That's not Paul's understanding of Jesus. Jesus is... Love in our lives and grace and mercy. Yes, he speaks words that challenge us. But his relationship with us is based on his love. And as Paul is speaking to wives in the church, he's describing a relationship like the one we have with Jesus. Now, a long time ago, I had a, a friend, Leslie and I had a very dear friend named Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you will remember Elizabeth Elliot. She wrote wonderful books. She was a wife of a missionary who was killed and lived most of her life uh, as a widow from him. And uh, she wrote books about the relationship uh, between women and their husbands, uh, about women, womanhood generally. And Elizabeth was a member of the first church that Leslie and I served, and we actually got to know her uh, and had a wonderful time with Elizabeth. And I remember one time someone coming to her and said to her, well, Elizabeth, I love your books, but my husband is a scoundrel. And then she laid out exactly why she felt that way. And it was a horrible story. Abuse, violence, unimaginable things. It was a hard thing to hear. And this woman was telling this with tears in her eyes. 
And I'll never forget what Elizabeth said. Now, she'd written these books and believed these things and was very articulate in expressing them. She listened to this woman's story. And she said, Sister, I'm paraphrasing. Sister, that breaks my heart. It truly does. And I can't tell you exactly what to do about that. I can't tell you exactly how you live out what Jesus is calling you to do. But she said, this I know. Take it to Jesus. And at the foot of his cross, discuss it there with him. And do what Jesus would have you do. The word will help us, will not be easy, but take it to Jesus. And, and discuss it with him at the foot of the cross. And if you're convicted that there's more you can do, something else you can do, then do it. If it's time to leave with broken hearts, then do it. But go to Christ and discuss it there with him. We can't answer all the what-ifs. We can't answer all the infinite stupid things husbands do. I mean, even in our little church, I know examples of things that are more unchristlike than I can imagine. In our little church, men are capable of the most unbelievable acts of cruelty. Breaks my heart, it must grieve the Lord. So I don't want to try to deal with every imaginable case. I know there are difficult cases. But what Paul is saying here is, as you are able, in the relationship where you are, wives, submit to your husbands. Figure out what that means. The Bible's like that. Figure out what that means in your situation. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus' people. Go to a loved, trusted Christian friend. Discuss it there at the foot of the cross. And he's saying to husbands, husbands, love your wives the way Jesus did. And that's hard work. And there's not a man here who fills up to it. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus' people. How do I do that, Lord? Help me. I don't know. There's this problem and that problem. She does this. She does that. This is our situation. It's complicated. Go to Jesus. Discuss it with Jesus at the foot of the cross in the light of his word and he'll lead you. He'll help you. It may be very difficult. There may be pain. You know. But go to Jesus. I want to close by, I want to say the most important point Paul is making. Uh, Paul is applying what he's been saying about walking in love and true humility. He's, he's taking those general points and what he's beginning to do here in verse 22, and he's going to do it down through chapter 6, is he takes this general idea and he actually tries to apply it in real life. Because you see, we live our Christian life really the way it's supposed to be, not in our heads, uh, not on the internet, not through social media. The, the place we live our Christian life is in the relationships we have with other people. And that's where it gets really hard. You see, a theological debating society, you can get away with a lot. Whoever's loudest or smartest, 
You know, in a theological debating side, you can do all kinds of things. Sometimes a marriage looks and feels a little bit like a theological debating society. That's not what Paul's describing here. He's describing human relationships. And it's in the context of human relationships that we actually live this out. And he writes more about the relationship of marriage than he does about any of the other important relationships he's going to describe. And the reason he does that is he tells us the very end. He says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See what he's saying? He says, imagine the closest, most intimate human relationship you can possibly have. The most intimate human relationship any person can have. Summed up in the marriage relationship. Jesus says, imagine that, multiply it by infinity. At its very best, our relationship with Christ is like that. Our relationship with Jesus is the most intimate relationship we can possibly have. And so we can go to Jesus and talk to Jesus about anything. Any problem we're having, anything we're confused about, anything we're frightened about, we go and talk to Jesus. It's a mystery. How can we do this? We do it by the Spirit. Because we're invited to do it by Jesus. It's, the, it's our relationship with him. It's a family relationship that we have with Jesus. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He re-articulates what he said. But it's all in the context of this, this vibrant personal relationship which we're meant to have with Christ. In the church, we're about to share a meal. Is there anything more intimate than taking bread from someone's hands and a little tiny cup of wine and and we're going to share that together? It's that intimate. That's what he's describing the life of the churches to be. That's a million miles from the way we usually experience church. Church is something you go to, right? You sit in the back row, they dim the lights, and the show starts up front. Well, may it never be that way among us. It's, it's, a, it's an intimate relationship. I, I would hate to see Metrochrist ever grow to the point where we couldn't do that. That's what church is. It's something we are together. And Paul's saying it's a mystery, but this is what we're meant to have with Jesus. One last uh, reference to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, at the close of her wedding ceremony... I listened to it again this morning. Long ago, before most of us were born, the Archbishop of Canterbury prayed that Elizabeth and her sinful husband, Philip, he prayed that they would be able to live together in God's love. And finally, he said, that they may dwell together in thy eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I, I personally, I don't know her. I personally believe the queen saw the answer to that prayer. Two sinners, broken down, inadequate. She lived 70 years with this sinful man. Here she was, the queen of the nation. And yet in her heart, in her personal relationship with her husband, she sought to show Christ-like submission to him, to live in 
relationship with him. And, you know, it's never really described exactly what that means. I think in every relationship it looks a little different. But she sought to do that, and I believe that prayer was answered, as I believe it will always be answered, that if we aim to do that, we run to Jesus and seek his wisdom, seek his help. There may be lots of awful twists and turns. There often are those twists and turns. There may be those sad situations where, well, you know, it just it does happen. But I want to say that I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I think that what Paul's describing here, is a, which is a kind of promise, that we often see it lived out just the way he describes, a tiny picture of God's faithfulness in the relationship between two sinful people, each doing a different role, but each seeking to show something of the character and love and mercy of Christ. This sermon on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, includes the Apostle Paul's guidance on the relationship God intends between husbands and wives. As we all know, human relationships often fall short of what God intends, and many individuals, both men and women, experience domestic abuse. For this reason, we're taking the unusual step of adding this special note to today's sermon. If you're experiencing domestic abuse of any kind, please remove yourself immediately from the situation and notify the police or other appropriate authorities. Many communities offer support to victims. Here in Carrollton, Texas, you can call the 24-hour domestic abuse hotline at 214-941-1991. We at Metrocrest Presbyterian Church also care and are eager to help. If we can be of any assistance, you can call 972-394-1122 and speak to either me, Pastor Bill Lovell, Women's Ministry Coordinator Susan Smith, or Women's Prayer Ministry Coordinator Gwen Sterenberg. Our church cares deeply for those caught in abuse, and more importantly, so does the God whom we serve.